0: Welcome back. My name is Logan Williams, and I'm your host for this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. Have you ever wondered how the disastrous impacts of climate change affect national security and global security? How do we, states, and international organizations respond to these and prepare for imminent challenges? Should we aim for increased globalization? Does the framing of climate change as a national security issue even allow us to do so? Today, we're going to dive into all of these issues and more. I'm lucky to be joined for this episode by two distinguished experts from the Climate Change and Insecurity Project. First, we'll be going into the key impacts of climate change on national security apparatuses and how the framing of these issues matters. Then, we'll take a look at how these considerations are tackled on the local and multilateral levels and what holds nations back from responding, and finally, we'll discuss other solutions and angles, such as gender perspectives, to find silver linings for the future. Let's dive in. So, by way of introduction, the Climate Change and Insecurity Project is an initiative of the University of Oxford and the UK Army's Centre for Historical Analysis in Conflict Research. With me today are Dr. Tim Clack, who's the director of the Climate Change and Insecurity Project. He is the Chingiz Gutierrez Fellow at the School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography at the University of Oxford. He is also an official uh, fellow at Rubin College. His research focuses on certain responses to climate change and environmental change, including conflict and migration. Prior to and alongside his academic career, he has delivered a number of senior and specialist roles, Uh, for the United Kingdom Cabinet Office, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and Stabilization Unit. And with me as well is Louise Selzny, who is a strategic consultant with a specific interest in communications and defense. Uh, She has been engaged by a variety of organizations across the corporate and public sectors, including the United Kingdom Home Office and the UK Ministry of Defense. She has a wide range of local governance and stakeholder relations experience in Eastern Africa and Central Asia. While her practical expertise relates mainly to human security and conflict, she maintains a distinct focus on promoting gender equity. Uh, So lovely to have you both here today uh, to discuss this episode's topic on climate change and national security. At a relatively basic level, why does climate change matter as a national security consideration? I turn over to you first, Tim, on on kind of that broad, you know, why does this uh, overall project, multidisciplinary project, exist?
1: Great. Thanks, Logan. Well, um, most of us now know what climate change has in store for the next 20 to 50 years. The scale and tempo of extreme weather events, um, increasing more droughts, floods, melting of ice caps, permafrost, rises in sea levels and so on. And we're facing up to the reality of some of those issues already. We can think about recent wildfires in Australia, Siberia and the United States and the famines caused by droughts in the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, and the and the Arabian Peninsula, and this is relevant for a whole range of reasons. At the most immediate level, um, history teaches us that extreme weather can impact national security outcomes. Um, military campaigns have been undermined by weather, and that's had knock on effects for kind of global affairs. And um, we can think here about the defeat of the Spanish Armada. You know the kind of winds that scattered the ships. Kublai Khan's attempt to conquer Japan being fooled by a typhoon, and um, both Napoleon's Grand Armée and Hitler's panzer divisions perishing in Russia, partly due to to brutal brutal winters. And so as weather gets more extreme, so will the military shocks caused by it. Um, So so that's at one level. But climate change security kind of goes beyond this as well. Um, And in the language of national security climate change is recognized as both a threat multiplier and also as a shaping threat and and what this means is that climate change makes existing threats worse but it also configures the very context in which those those threats exist so climate threats don't exist in isolation they um, they, they interact um, in kind of complex ways with pre-existing uh, risks and vulnerabilities. So we can think here about socioeconomic inequality, fragile governance, uh, interstate, uh, sorry, intergroup tension, sectarianism, that kind of thing. Um, and so what that means is that climate change makes conflicts messier and and more difficult to resolve. Climate change also creates other kind Of problems which have a, a, a kind of um, security dimension, things like mass displacement, migration, food and water insecurities, pandemics, um, state competition, both uh, interstate and intrastate competition, and also economic pain. Um, and you know, bundled together, um, we, ha- we, we, we have a kind of security situation globally, regionally and locally, which is made worse by by climate change.
0: Great. Yeah. And so based off of that, how do international organizations, say NATO, um and like alliances uh work to combat that? Or or um address these national security, the climate change issues that are not in isolation, um, as these kind of multifaceted problems? <laughs> well it's it's um it's it's tricky, um, and it,
1: it it's best kind of discussed and on a kind of case by case basis. Um, what we can note is that as the kind of tempo of of, uh, of uh, the threat from climate change has accelerated, we're starting to to see climate conflict hotspots emerge. Um, the obvious examples that spring to mind here are um, the Arctic and um, And and kind of Western Africa, the Sahelian part of of Western Africa. So if I speak to what's happening in the Arctic, um, we can see that uh, kind of melting polar ice is amplifying strategic competition as access to mineral deposits um, start to improve, um, but also new trade routes uh, are, are emerging. The kind of breakdown of the pack ice allows kind of shipping to move through. So uh, the Northern Sea Route, as it's called, which is a a shipping lane which has the potential to to rival the Suez Canal, um, that's been declared a national asset by Russia. Attracted by the potential reward, the US and others have stated that they regard this sea route as an international domain. So we've already got competition there. Um, competition which is exaggerated further by by China, who are also in the the game, so to speak. Um, And they have started to refer to a polar silk road. And they've also started to call themselves a near Arctic state. And that's obviously something that is, in absolute terms, absolutely false. Um, Now, these competing interests have seen the high north Face an unprecedented process of militarization. So, so Russia, for its part, um, has invested heavily in defence infrastructure, and it performs its power through the presence um, of of nuclear submarines, MiG thirty one fighter jets, and, and and troop exercises. The US is also militarily present; hasn't shied away from committing their own uh, military assets either, and and most recently. Um, sent lots of bombers to, to Norway. And so nations and, and militaries are effectively looking to not only defend against the threats that are, that are emerging, but they're also looking to, to exploit opportunities. Um, and there's obviously a kind of tension there between, um, uh, kind of what we might call kind of global security and, and, and national interest.
0: And and so I want to I guess, stick on that um, the global cooperation and national militarization. How do we reconcile that, uh, especially when we uh, institutionalize uh, climate in national security apparatuses and uh, like our national security focuses? <laughs>
1: that's a that's a great question. That's the the sixty four thousand dollar question. I think um, now there are you know these these tensions between local, national, and and, and global interests. Um, I think we need to, to kind of start by recognizing that, that, that governments and militaries have a moral imperative to protect their citizens, to protect their state borders and to um, protect their, their national interests. Um, but there are other kind of dynamics in play. These um, you know, think about democracies. there's the need to win elections, there's the need to maintain the way of life. Um, and there's the need to deliver policies that um, that kind of deliver and win consent from from publics. So f- so for me, there, there's kind of certain areas where um, the squaring of the circle um, of national versus global interest um, becomes becomes possible. There are certain areas where where it isn't, but but where it is possible, I think is um, firstly we need to recognise. That um, when it comes to much of the uh, climate security problem set, the national interest is usually aligned with the global interest. So um, most nations want to curb conflict and terrorism. They want to reduce incidents of pandemics, floods, and wildfires. And you know, in in those kind of areas, there's a useful compatibility um, available. I think there's also another area, which is that the the West has to invest in cooperation in order to drive the agenda. So recognising that climate is a security threat opens up budgets and capabilities, which could be used to influence other nations. And the more nations can signal, and I mean that kind of both domestically and, and kind of overseas, that this is a global problem requiring a kind of global response the better and the the other area i think um is that when it comes to addressing climate security reputations are on the line um and if they're not on the line then they need to be kind of situated there so here i'd note that security apparatuses could be used to uh, to call out those nations that do not meet the commitments to which they are signatories. So for example, you know, capturing data on CO2, uh, CO2 emissions, uh, data on technology transfer, those kind of commitments, and then putting them in the public domain. Um, what that might mean is that um, nations are kind of levered into um, kind of getting with the kind of global solution and, um, but it could also mean that those that renege could face diplomatic or, or, or economic response. Um and I suppose in, in in the world that we live in today, consumer behaviour could also be an important an important factor. Um so those those nations that aren't kind of addressing climate concerns, climate security concerns, um, they could face um, a boycott of goods um, you know, because they're not moving in the in the right direction. So, it's, in answering that question, it's a case of looking for that for that kind of kind of overlap between the national and global, exploiting it, influencing influencing it um, appropriately, um, but also exposing those that aren't actually um, engaging in a, in a kind of equitable level with with, with finding appropriate solutions.
0: Yeah, I know recently, um, the Biden administration, incoming Biden administration, announced the special uh, cl- envoy for climate uh, would sit on the National Security Council as a, as a member of it. Um, is that one of those directions that this uh, that is a good direction to go in, is uh, acknowledging it as part of um, the national security question uh, for both domestic interests, but then working on the international level? Uh, how they work uh, diplomatically with international organizations
1: that's also that 's also a good question i think in in many ways um, lots of states are still trying to win the internal high ground in terms of in terms of policy and direction there 's an element of experimentation and, and, a, and a case of kind of winning the argument internally that that, that climate security um, is a problem i think having those voices at the table in the tent um talking about these these issues is um is a kind of vital first step and should potentially lead then to um the levering of 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 kind of capabilities and so on um i mean what 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 we could note i suppose is that um is that militaries in those areas where there has been a focus on this, militaries are starting to recognize that they might be part of the problem in that they burn vast amounts of vast amounts of carbon. Um, and you know I'm thinking of the example of the UK for example. Um, and there are some good news stories which which demonstrate an increasing appetite on the part of militaries to deal with what's now being called their kind of carbon bootprint. Um, you know so we're seeing investment in prototype electric vehicles everything from tanks to logistical platforms um, they've trialed synthetic fuels for for aviation um, and they've also made uh, buildings on the training estate um, kind of net net negative and i think those those militaries that are making those changes are kind of best best place to to kind of recognize um, the kind of broader, climate security
0: um issues great and so looking at i know you talked about droughts as a um uh an increasingly likely outcome of climate change do you think that water wars are increasingly likely as a um of avenue of conflict over water resources where might that exist um if it is going to uh become kind of more prevalent so Absolutely, water is
1: water is life, right? Um, and and so, I think yes, um, wars over water um, are, are likely in our our lifetimes. Um, I, I'd probably add to that. Actually, it's not just water; it's also um, food and and potentially also fertile soil um, that, that 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 is um, potentially going to be a focus of increased increased tensions that that that, that could scale into. Into conflict. Um, um, rather than talking generally, if I talk about um, the part of the world that I'm kind of most familiar with, Africa, um, we can kind of see strategic tensions in a number of different different parts. So, um, you think about Botswana and Namibia, the tensions over the Chobe River, um, the Okavanga River Basin, causing tensions between Angola, Namibia, and Botswana. Lake Edward tensions between uganda and the and and the drc um and these are situations that are likely to 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 escalate obviously the kind of uh, the the most obvious african case study to um to mention um is to do with the nile the nile you know lifeline to millions of people in um in the kind of horn of africa and in that part of the world tensions are escalating between Egypt and Sudan on the one hand as, as downstream states and Ethiopia on the other um, as an upstream state and the builder of a massive dam. Um, now, Egypt has has called the uh, GERD, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, they've, they've already called it out as an existential threat. They've asked the international community to help put pressure on Ethiopia to create a legally binding agreement over the allocation of the of, of the Niles water you know they, that that's kind of hit um deaf ears currently uh, Ethiopia's ignored the requests and the kind of tensions the tensions escalate but it remains to be seen whether 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 and when GERD is fully operational what the impact will be how the um the kind of inundation the water flow will be affected and whether in times of drought, and this is a part of the world that has, you know, fairly regular droughts, um, and, and with climate change, that's likely to the kind of tempo of those is likely to increase. So so in those kind of scenarios, how much water will Ethiopia be prepared to release? Um, ultimately, for Ethiopia, this would require a, a self-administration of um, electricity shortages, Reduced harvest in kind of agricultural investment areas, cash cropping kind of areas. Um, you know, will Ethiopia be prepared to do that and up, upset its own its own public in order to help communities in crisis um, in another sovereign country? And will they be willing to do that regularly? I think that's a um, a huge a huge question, um, and you know, I, I w- we'll find out in the next perhaps in the next decade, certainly. Um, and i'd kind of add to that um tensions between ethiopia and 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 egypt um, is 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 not a good thing when considered through the optics of of security you know these are the largest and most credible militaries in the region um and and you know a, an, an escalatory um kind of conflict between those two nations would have implications for the region but also um probably globally as well.
0: And so speaking, I guess, of, of, you know, the difference between the, the local levels, multilateralism and, and how that works between um, kind of going outside of regions. Um, Luis, I, w- I want to turn to you on, um, you know, how much does the framing of climate change, uh, the issue itself, matter in finding solutions? And, and are there different ways that states do this um, to go about developing policy or um, kind of how does that how does that work?
2: Thank you, Logan. Um, I think the way you frame an issue massively impacts on the solutions that are found Um, and with regards to climate change security, we need to frame this issue in a way that really encapsulates and explains the immediate threats to global security and economies Um, And if we just take one example, let's say biodiversity. um, And personally, I'm troubled by the loss of biodiversity for its own sake because of its intrinsic value um, of all life. And I've been lucky enough to have some incredible wildlife experiences, but unfortunately governments will only take action um, and make responses based on imminent threats to security and economic stability. Um, And with climate change specifically, Um, We have increasing temperature, which is reducing biodiversity. And this leads to loss of keystone species. And if we just take an example of coral reef, um, this um, can have dramatic impacts on economic stability because a two degree increase in temperature will kill over 99% of coral reef. And that's the foundation for the um, economic stability for over 500 million people. Um, And that's 500 million hungry people needing to find alternate sources of food income and that's mass displacement of people oftentimes to places already at their carrying capacity Um, and it should also be noted actually that um a 1.1 degree which seems to already be um, baked into the systems we have it is going to destroy around 33% of coral reef and every slight increase in increments um, in temperature increase will have a massive impact and so that's why it's really really important to keep pushing with strategies to mitigate these impacts and biodiversity is only one aspect of many. Um, Climate change is causing Um, increased frequency and severity of storms and floods, mortality of forests, the expansion of deserts and sandstorm ranges, rising sea levels, temperature and acidification, expansion of disease zones, rising land temperatures, widespread drought, and water security. And what these things do is they combine and complicate existing stresses um, to then go on to inhibit food production. They increase the scale and severity of acute and chronic illness. They undermine economic productivity. They deepen intergroup cleavages. They provoke mass migration, displacement, and ultimately they weaken states. Um, And so just with my last point with regards to framing, um, of course, you need to work through complex processes in terms of creating sustainable responses. But ultimately, this is a really simple equation. Anthropogenic climate change is heating our world. And this is annihilating the resources we need to maintain peace and economic stability. It's that simple. And it's not 30, 50 years away in the future. This is now. It's getting hotter and harder to contain threats now, today. And so if we wait to fix this, we'll tip past the point of no return um, and our way of life will be lost. And so ultimately, we need to frame this reality. It's now or never. And I think that's the most important takeaway in terms of this, is framing a way that encapsulates the immediate threat to our global security and economy.
0: Thank you for that. And and I know... you you know you talk about how it it is so simple it's so straightforward and and there are these these um massively detrimental effects to uh, the world not not only just from one nation what's holding nations back from uh from recognizing it to that full extent or um kind of tackling it in a way that uh like you recommend it should be tackled what's holding them back
2: well I think one of the the main things is um I suppose I suppose it's, it's great we're talking to you today, Logan, from a kind of political um, perspective. Is that um, I mean, frankly, part of it is a kind of structural realities of the organisations um, that we have. And so, just one example, actually picking up what Tim was saying earlier, um, is that recently in um, December, the UN voted on a draft resolution to make climate change um, a threat to international peace and security. It was actually co-sponsored by um, the Irish um, delegation, and. Um, this actually gained um, majority consensus but unfortunately it was voted down because it was vetoed by a permanent member of the Security Council um, Russia and this was really really disappointing because um, I mean first of all um, it would have prevent it would have been a major step forward in preventing um, security risks associated with climate change um, but also it really highlighted that actually we're not in this together in the sense that Russia actually has a lot to gain economically from the effects of climate change. I think Tim touched on melting um, Arctic ice and how that will transform um, sea navigation routes to the benefit of Russia. And so um, having Russia as a permanent um, member, um, well, well, having permanent members is an issue. Obviously, we're not going to be able to kind of discuss and kind of fresh through today. But having Russia being able to vote on a system where it has such um, interests um is, is 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 problematic um and so it kind of highlights the kind of structural inequities that we have of our um institutions like the UN and 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 the org- organs of governance um around that um, because actually there is quite a lot of consensus so we um so again tipping back to um discussing nato um nato put forward its climate change and security action in june The Canadian government offered to host the NATO Centre of Excellence on Climate Security. Um, I think you mentioned Logan the you know um, the unprecedented response of the Biden administration's regards to climate security, and so we really do have a kind of working consensus. Um, And the problem is um, this is only working on an individual basis. And what we need to really see is this really is this is a kind of universal war. And um, we have to, you know, be working together. And I think that's where we're kind of failing, is because um, the action that we need to take um, may have negative impacts on our domestic economies. And so, obviously, specifically, that comes to the fuel we use, um, the the way we um, the, the, the way we consume, and these are going to have dramatic impacts. And so, um, I suppose the UK we're quite lucky in terms of um, maybe the most extreme impacts being further down the line. But when we think about countries, um, as Tim mentioned, you know, in, in the Sahel, um, in um, the low-lying um, nation states, you know, th- you know, climate change is an existential threat for these nations. And so we need to be thinking within a kind of global um, context and we need to be making sure that we're working towards maintaining all these incredible principles that, you know, these are decades and decades old, you know, going back to the United Nations, um, the, the founding of NATO, these these are now, you know, fully established, well-established um organs and institutions with all this great highfalutin and great sounding you know preambles and these wonderful bits of legislation what we need now is a way to enact those we know what we need to do we knew what we needed to do you know 30 years ago it's just we're not doing it and and I think part of the problem is being able to take um smaller hits at a national level that will then create bigger wins on the global scale and I think that's probably one of the most important um Things to be able to get across with with climate change security,
1: Logan. Would it be possible just to, to come in there just to make a um an additional comment about about framing? Um, we, we, I suppose we all know that security is a powerful kind of um, political lever in language, in voter behavior, in in policy, and economic economic spend. Um, and there's kind of a couple of things that it's kind of useful to, 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 point out, um, that kind of relevant to the, to, to the framing issue. And the, and, and the first, um, is, is a concept it's been used by the likes of, of, of Rob Nixon and it's, and it's slow violence. Um, and this is effectively a, a way to describe a form of violence that happens at such a slow pace that it's, um, somewhat imperceptible until it's kind of later stages. Um, and I, and the best way to kind of think about this, um, is, is, is to, um, imagine somebody throws a rock, but instead of it hitting you, it flies through generational time and it injures your grandchild. And, and I think we, we, we would do well to communicate that, that that the rocks are in the air. Um, and you know, some of them are starting, are starting to hit. Um, but I think kind of beyond that conceptually, um, we need to, communicate much more forcefully to to, to publics that, that, that anthropogenic climate change is a massive security problem. Um, and a useful way to, of, of kind of conceptualizing that um, is in, in a kind of comparative way. So if, if there was an adversary out there that was attacking your cities with floods, fires, bioweapons, uh, which threatened to take your drinking water destroy your your agriculture and your food supply and otherwise cause untold human uh, and economic harm, we know what the response would be. The response would be war. It would be total and immediate war. Um, so in some ways, we need to frame this better. Um, we need to respond with necessary urgency. And we need to change our security gearing and thinking, um, You know, create a, a kind of modulated security paradigm that kind of captures that in in some way. Um, this is a, a a different type of security problem, um, so we're going to have to be somewhat innovative in terms of how how, how, how we as as, as as you know um, as nations respond.
0: So I guess speaking of inno- innovations, um, you know, changes of how we look at this and frame it. Are there any kind of climate mitigation successes right now that are happening at the local level um, that could be scaled up and and learned from towards the national or global level? Um, And how do those solutions uh, to the short-term impacts of climate change on national security differ from longer-term ones that uh, maybe would be um, several generations?
2: I think that's a really, really great question. And um, in typical um, (laughs) political style, um, I'd just like to suggest that rather than kind of thinking in terms of long and short term with regards to climate change, I think it would actually be really more helpful to think in terms of cycles and particularly self-contained systems. Um, And so rather than long and short term, we think about couplings and feedbacks. And couplings are links or interactions between subsystems and feedback loops illustrate the multiple couplings interacting and so if we take a step back we can really see the whole and fully capture um the um the, the process which kind of captures change and responses to that change and so specifically um, we can have um, what's been deemed um, a path analysis where you follow one chain of events that can demonstrate um, for example that climate change can affect economic productivity and um, as Tim pointed out that could be through droughts causing reduced water supply that causes reduced agricultural capacity or it could be through flood which inundates assets and damages critical infrastructure but the key Takeaway is that both of these pathways drive tension and potential conflict. Um, and then, when we kind of take the step back and we look at the whole system as a whole, we can see that there's a huge number of pathways that can affect economic productivity and increase insecurity. Um, and Looking at this also highlights, um, for example, actually, um, again, flipping back to we were talking about um, melting um, Arctic ice, is that actually when we realise that um, melting sea ice in the Arctic is actually responsible for the, the droughts in the Sahel. Um, you know, these things aren't immediately obvious, but th- this is what the thinking about things in a self-contained system, it, it causes us to realise. And it's not just the Sahel, um, actually, um, because um, the the freshwater influx in the North Atlantic slows down the natural process of marine heat and salt transposition. This triggers processes that have reaches into the West African monsoon. And actually, even the Amazon, I know Tim noted the NAR, but actually the Amazon could dry up because of melting sea ice. And then that would create a buildup of heat in the Southern Ocean, which then would actually accelerate the melt of Antarctic sea ice. And so when we look at things as a systemic whole, we see that looking at them in a holistic way um, brings into focus that we need to deal with things in a holistic way. And um, so coming back to um, the local um, responses, um, I think it's important that we have um, an appreciation of how Um, climate change in one area will then kind of trigger processes that can then impact in in another area. And with regards to local responses, um, they will have evolved and adapted um, in situ and so probably are more effective um, in terms of tackling um, localised climate change. Um, So say, for example, in Mali, we have areas of drought but we also have areas of flood we have different modalities in terms of tribal dynamics and 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 potential for conflict and so having a very focused um um local appreciation is also really important and so one of the um the real successes in in northern Mali um, was uh, market gardens, um, and the presence of the Islamic states um, in in Mali affected obviously all Malians, but particularly compromised the autonomy and development of women. And market gardens helped to develop local food security and commerce, and assist women with opportunities for generating income, and also provided actually a, nas- a necessary anchor point f- um, from which to platform women centred support systems that had you know gone underground or atrophied and. Under- and, uh- um, the Islamic State. Um, and um, and actually, you know, it would be remiss of me to fail to have shout outs to activists such as Dagan Ali. Um, she's the founder of the Network for Empowered Aid Response, or NIR. She's a Somali activist, but has incredible reach across Africa and prominent institutions like the UN. Um, and she actually highlighted the minuscule amount of funding that went to local organizations. So I think five years ago, I think the figure was around 2%. Um, and she worked with other activists on what was called the UN Grand Bargain Um, actually no, um, the UN Grand Bargain 2.0 we're on now Um, and that aims to allocate 25% of all humanitarian funding to local partners and national responders and I think this is really, really key because ultimately um, funding finance this is going to be the key to all the solutions that we have um, and so the Grand Bargain um, was um, channeling um, itself through two um, enabling priorities, and what these were um, are quality funding, so for funding that's flexible, predictable and allocated on a multi-year basis, and donor accountability, so support for local responders and community participation. And what that means is that you can look ahead, and that's exactly what we need to be doing with climate security, is looking ahead. We need to, um, so. Um, Organisations need to know they're going to be having funding that they can spend on locally relevant initiatives and organisations, because another key impact that gets missed is that actually we are dependent on local... local um personalities and actors you know ultimately um we we need people that are engaged and how they're engaged and the kind of the relevant issues that they need to be processing and so i think this is um i think that's really really important and so so again just just to summarize i think that it's really important in in terms of response that we 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 obviously maintain a global strategic overview and we have organs like the united nations working together however i think that should enable local responses because ultimately local responses are going to be targeted um how they're needed by by the actors that will be able to kind of produce those changes
0: absolutely uh thank you uh for that and and i know that this is are obviously a um, large scale systemic and, and um, alarming issues that uh, the world is going through and will be going through um, in the coming generations, uh, especially in, in cycles. Uh, so I, I did want to thank both of you so much for coming and in interviewing today. I know that uh, this topic is obviously um, very prescient and um, very serious of a topic, but I wanted to leave it to you two uh, for like one last what are you uh looking forward to excited about um you know take the most kind of confidence in uh as a positive um that the world is going towards in in this kind of climate change and national security sphere <laughs> that's a good question i think i think i'm i'm s- somewhat somewhat pessimistic
1: and, and 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 i'm and I'm worried that the situation needs to get worse before it gets better um and 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 we we we, we know about Um, we know about kind of tipping points and how you know the um the 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 kind of line that's usefully banded around is 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 that the the best time to have dealt with this situation was yesterday, the second best time is today. Um, I'm worried that we're kind of we're going to be dealing with a lot of this a lot of this um tomorrow. Um, having said that, um, militaries are starting to um. To focus on this, there are, you know, the 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 UK produced a um, climate change and uh, the UK MOD produced a uh, climate change and sustainability policy. Um, they they have a number of, of of kind of people in place. The um, the US um, National Intelligence Council um, produced an assessment uh, which which identified countries of of kind of great concern um, and being particularly vulnerable to the physical effects of. Of climate change, so from a an awareness perspective, that's the positive. We we we, we we've got we're we're building awareness that this is a problem, um, and um, that's probably the first step towards developing understanding and response.
0: Great, and Louise
2: actually I'm I'm really really positive about this um, I think that um, I spent a lot of time um, working um, abroad and um, working with really talented really committed individuals um, resilient funny <laughs> wonderful wonderful individuals you know particularly women actually I think I'm um, having a shout out to kind of women particularly um, working um, in this field and I think one of the biggest things um, we need to do is um, work together So, um, I I, I do actually worry that um, there could potentially be an over-securitization of this issue because I think that would inhibit um, integration. And I think integration across the military, humanitarian, development, and climate change intervention is key because it's effective integration that will prevent over securitization um, of climate responses but it also prioritize the indigenous management of governance infrastructure urban planning um, and really look at the ways that we can mitigate and adapt um, in ways that are relevant to local situations Um, and so ultimately I think that we are we're we've acknowledged the situation and I think just what we have to do is what we're doing today is just kind of try and get it out there in terms of how urgent this threat is, um, and how we can work together because, um, I think that's, that's really important as well, is that there are lots of people working on this, there are, they've been lots of people working on this for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, Um, and the lady I mentioned earlier, um, Dagan Ali, her mother was also a kind of committed activist in this, in this area too, and so it's not the case that we're having to keep reinventing the wheel, what we need to do is reinvent ways to um, capture all the energy and all the, Purpose um, that people already have within this um, area, and really make sure that we're working together and um, in a way that can that can really shape a positive response to this issue.
0: Absolutely, and and thank you so much to to both of you, Tim and Louise, for uh, joining us today on uh, Oxford Policy Pod. I know that this is um, definitely one of the most um, important issues of our time, um, and we're so happy that. Uh, We're able to have you two to to come discuss it and and talk about uh, your climate change and insecurity project. Would love to have you come by again sometime. And and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Logan. Pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod, where we explored the intersections between national security and climate change, and what governments can do to solve these issues. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram on at Oxford Policy Pod underscore and on Twitter at, at Oxford Policy Pod. The executive producers for this season are Reed Leask and Livy Beha. And this episode was produced by Claudia Nick Grace Miner, Elsa Katz, and Logan Williams. Our thanks to Dr. Clack and Ms. Selsny. We hope to see you again next week when we talk about climate migration. Thank you.